welcome to Colored Red, a podcast all about Colorado true crime. I am your host, Laura. And I feel like I say this in every single episode, but this case that I'm covering for you guys today is one of the most incredibly tragic and senseless cases I've ever done, but it really, really struck this deep nerve with me. Most of the information for this murder is coming from a book called A Clockwork Murder by Steve Jackson. Steve Jackson has written a number of books about Colorado crimes, and I have most of them, and they're pretty good. As always, I don't really get into the depths of what he writes about, and these crimes are a little bit deeper than the things I'm going to discuss. He particularly gets into her parents and what they went through with this entire ordeal for this crime I'm going to be discussing. So it's worth reading the books and to get the full picture, so check them out. This is the murder of Jacine Galinsky by George Wolt and Lucas Salmon in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Now, I'm not an incredibly emotional person. I never have been. But honestly, I cried reading some of the aspects of this case. I feel like maybe it's because the victim was an only child and I'm an only child. And reading the things that her mother went through made me really hurt for her because I imagined what my mom might go through. And my mom's going to be listening to this. Sorry, mom. One hour you're in bed and your life is fine and your daughter's alive. And the next you're hearing from a police officer that not only is she dead, but she suffered. One really unique aspect of this case is that we have this really detailed account of the murder because the perpetrators were caught almost immediately, like within hours of the crime, and they immediately gave up this incredibly detailed account of Jacine's horrible last hour. Everything in this case happened so quickly that, at least for me, I imagine hearing that this happened to someone I know, and I can imagine that sensation of the world just completely falling out from under me as it did for everyone who knew Jacine. Jacine was called Jace by her friends and family that knew her well, and she had a lot of people who knew her or just knew of her. Like I said, she was an only child, but growing up, her house was the center of play for every child in the neighborhood. Jacine was particularly into sports, so much that she got a scholarship to attend college playing volleyball. And she had often helped um, take her high school to basketball team championships. But she wasn't just a jock. She was the type of person who was eager to include everyone and befriend anyone who she could. And she would see that people were being left out and she would go out of her way to include them. Her story is full of tons of people who came out to say what a guiding light she was when no one else would be their friend in high school and what a help she was to them when they had no other friends. Jacine's home life was a little bit rough, though. Her parents split when she was young, and her biological father was incredibly distant in her life. He was a habitual drug dealer and an alcoholic, but that isn't to say that she didn't have a father figure who was supportive. Her mom, Peggy, ended up remarrying a man named Bob um, Luzier, and Jacine herself actually suggested at the age of seven that Bob and her mom get married because she wanted to be their flower girl. Bob showed up to all of her games and was by all accounts her father, and he was incredibly involved in her life from a very young age. And it was Bob who had to handle the phone calls and news during and after Jacine's murder. Jacine graduated from high school in 1993, and she was awarded a full volleyball scholarship to a junior college in Southern Colorado. Steve Jackson, in his book, 
makes it a point to say that while she was the star player of the team, she was also the one who decorated the locker room and put up inspirational sayings on her teammates' lockers. While at the junior college, she fell in love with a police officer, and he was also the assistant coach of the volleyball team, and his name was Mike Lemon. But their relationship was strained. For one thing, Jacine paid for nearly everything in their relationship, including, at the end of it, a trip to Mexico, after which Mike had told her to fuck off when they weren't even out of the airport yet. She was dealing with the pain of this breakup while also transferring to University of Colorado in Colorado Springs, where she was also awarded a volleyball scholarship. She had a really hard time getting over Mike Lemon, and she would call him several times a day just to be ignored, sometimes upwards of 20 times. Before this relationship issue, she also found out that her biological dad was dying of cancer. And like the really forgiving and loving person that she was, she decided that she was going to strike up more of a relationship with her biological dad for pretty much the first time in her life. She would spend weekends at his house taking care of him, and his death ended up really, really depressing her. By the time she was about to finish college, there was a lot on her mind. She told friends that she thought the ghost of her dead father was trying to visit her, and she was upset by having to postpone her graduation date because her final classes that she needed were not offered over the summer in order for her to complete them earlier. She was also having some health issues and was battling mononucleosis, which left her exhausted and even more depressed. But Jacine was powering through. She had a new boyfriend, and she told her worried mom and stepdad that everything was a-okay. On April 29, 1997, Jacine left her apartment and told her roommate that she was heading to her new boyfriend's house for a late dinner. She parked her car outside of his apartment building and was making her way to the security gate when two men came up from behind her. One wrapped his arm around her waist and the other around her neck, and the other man grabbed her legs. They shoved her into their Ford Thunderbird and took off. These two men were George Walt and Lucas Salmon. And these two dudes are a couple of weird characters. I'll get right into it. George Walt was a womanizing and porn-addicted egomaniac. Lucas Salmon was at one point a really, really strict Christian, but his pairing with Walt happened because he was very easily manipulated. For lack of a better description, Lucas Salmon was an incel before the term ever became popularized. For all my listeners who might not know what an incel is, it's a term that has come up into the spotlights more over the last few years, referring to a man who is involuntarily celibate, aka an incel. Lucas Salmon's virginity and his shame over it played a central role both in his relationship with Walt and the act that they would complete together in the murder of Jacine. So let's talk about George Walt first. He was born in South Korea near a U.S. Army base where his father Bill, a white American, was stationed. His mother, Song Hui, is Korean. His mother absolutely doted on him as a child and made sure that every aspect of his appearance was perfect. She would constantly scrub his hands and make sure his hair was symmetrical and make sure his clothes were just immaculate. Despite the fact that they had another son named Eric a couple of years later, Song Hui dedicated her time to George. She made him a different meal than Eric and Bill at mealtimes. She even entered him into children's beauty contests 
which until this point I didn't know was even a thing that boys could be put into. But Song Hui had her own mental demons and she was prone to extreme mood swings and something that people around her called delusional ranting. She was described as an incredibly nervous woman. One moment she would be hitting George because of some perceived wrong and the next she would be holding him and telling him how perfect he was. In 1991, she was involuntarily committed into a psych ward in the United States after they had moved here, and her husband Bill tried many times to get her psychiatric help, but she would always maintain that she thought Bill was having an affair with any psychiatrist that they had come across. Bill ended up drowning out his sorrows in liquor at bars and rarely coming home at night. George maintained this level of perfectionism in himself as he grew older. When he was a child, he actually lost part of his index finger on his left hand in a bread-making machine. And on the stump of it, he always wore a band-aid over it. And oddly enough, he would always also wear a band-aid on his right finger just for the sake of maintaining symmetry. In fact, any time there was a band-aid on one side of his body, there had to be one in the same spot on the other side because he was that obsessed with symmetry. He'd wear band-aids on his clothing, too, and put them anywhere he felt like they were needed, even when they weren't actually needed for a wound. He insisted on symmetry in his hair as well. Either he had no part, or he had this perfect part going right down the middle, with almost exactly equal amounts of hair on each side of his head. He was obsessed with his fingernails, and up until the point that he was arrested, he carried a pair of nail clippers with him in his pocket everywhere he went. He also had the strange habit of sniffing everything that he came into contact with. Sniffing is in smelling. He smelled food, inanimate objects, and people that he came into contact with. Intelligence tests placed George Walt in the exceptionally bright range. And he always did fairly well in school until his final year of high school when his grades fell dramatically because he suddenly became interested in other things, including women and working. People in his school described him as a bit of a blowhard. He would claim that he had had sex with dozens of women and that because of his Asian heritage, he was a martial arts expert and contracted killer. He told people that he was awarded a million dollars for a lawsuit due to his missing finger, but that his parents were keeping it held up in a trust and that they were stealing his money from him. But George could at times be incredibly charismatic, and he could be someone who was charming when he was trying to be. And yet at other times, people said he had this habit of staring right through you while you were talking to him. His personality could turn on and off like a switch, and he had this other strange habit of slipping into cartoon character acts when he was put on the spot, and he especially loved acting out Beavis and Butthead. He would frequently fight with his mother, and friends described later on that they would go over to his house and that they would be stunned to stand there and watch him slam doors in his mother's face and get into screaming matches with her, or on occasion even spitting in her face. So it was really anybody's guess how George Walt, a womanizer, a drinker, a serious blowhard, ever came to be friends with a guy like Lucas Salmon. Lucas Salmon was born to fundamentalist Christian parents and was the middle child of five. Lucas's brother would eventually tell psychiatrists that the family was absolutely obsessed with appearing to be perfect, 
especially in church. But the family was far from perfect. Lucas's dad eventually became sexually involved with the family's teenage babysitter. And after that scandal was whispered around town and blew over, he became involved with yet another teenage babysitter. His dad had a certain flair for drama because one Valentine's Day he brought home flowers for Lucas's mother and told her then and there that he wanted a divorce. But keeping up appearances was important to them. And even after the parents split, Lucas's dad would come with them to church services every single weekend to make it seem like the family was still together. His father eventually remarried, and his mother slipped into a depression and remained distant. Lucas felt alone most of the time as well, and he coped by creating imaginary friends. He was also um, IQ tested at one point and was placed in the top 10% of the nation with a score of 134. But he was also a mediocre student, kind of like George Wold. He was often bullied, but he somehow managed to maintain some sort of presence in school sports and activities. At one point, Lucas's father divorced his second wife and in 1993 moved to Colorado Springs with a new girlfriend and two of his sons, including Lucas. Years later, his dad's girlfriend would tell police that it was because he was accused of sexual harassment again, but Lucas's father would maintain that it was because he wanted to be closer to focus on the family, of all things, a fundamentalist Christian organization headquartered in Colorado Springs. In fact, for a long time, Colorado Springs has been pretty much a white Republican and fundamentalist Christian stronghold. Lucas Salmon wasn't pleased with the move to Colorado Springs, but nevertheless tried to get along with people in his new high school. At home, his life was really strange. He was essentially ignored by his father while his brother was uplifted as the favorite son. Almost the opposite, in fact, of George Woltz's situation, where he was uplifted but his brother wasn't. In the family home, there were pictures all over of Lucas's brother, but none of him. Lucas, his brother, and his father, and the girlfriend all focused heavily on church, and Lucas was against smoking, drinking, profanity, pornography, and premarital sex, and he was taught to believe in God's grand design, not to question anything that life throws at him. All he ever had to do was accept Jesus and ask for forgiveness for his sins, and all would be well. So, in 1993, Lucas Salmon was a senior in high school, and he started a job at a telemarketing company called Future Call. And it was here that his life would take this turn towards darkness. Here he made friends with his co-worker, George Wolt. At first in the friendship, Lucas Salmon maintained his personality as this mild-mannered boy of the Bible, and he didn't see much in George Wolt, who would brag to co-workers and come on to women around the office. But over time, something about George made Lucas, a habitual and uncool loner, feel not only cool and accepted, but protected. I truly think that Lucas believed George at first, that he had slept with dozens of women, that he was a martial arts expert. Maybe he saw this small ninja and thought that he was cool. Before long, Lucas Salmon was going over to George's to watch porn. He also started smoking cigarettes and drinking and smoking pot while dabbling in harder drugs like LSD. George Walt was obsessed with porn. He would watch it like most people come home and watch sitcoms. He would watch it with Lucas. He would watch it with his girlfriends. 
and he would watch it all day long on the living room TV in front of anyone who was over. Lucas was naturally intrigued as an inexperienced and lonely guy. And what Lucas didn't realize was that George loved the level of control that he had over him. George made it his personal goal not only to get Lucas laid, but also to constantly berate him for being a virgin and hold his conquests over his head. On top of this weird dynamic, the two joined in together for some childlike fun. And in 1994, the two of them were arrested for throwing rocks through car windshields. They were both 18 at this time. And Lucas did have many chances to get away from George. In 1994, he left for Christian College in California. There he joined in with his classmates in academic projects and missionary work, going down into South America and Mexico. He even helped form a rock band and became the lead singer. But after one year, he was dismissed for bad grades, at which point he joined another college and received only one C to offset an entire transcript of Fs. So he was kicked out of college again. He got a job at one point working with autistic adults, but left after locking himself in a bathroom to get away from a particularly violent patient. At one point, he even applied to be a police officer, and he passed the test, but he never showed up for the actual interview part. During the time he was in California, he made attempts to be his own person, but he never really was. He was always George Waltz crony. During the summers... And holidays, he would come back to Colorado Springs and the two would pick up where they left off, watching porn and obsessing over Lucas's sex life. Lucas also had developed his own personal eccentricities. One was a fetish for women's shoes, especially red ones. He had boxes and boxes of them with him in college and he would jerk off while holding them or pressing them against himself and his penis. He also started fantasizing about sex with girls as young as 10 years old. One summer, there was a turning point, though, and he and George watched a movie called A Clockwork Orange. This is a movie based on the novel by Anthony Burgess. It's not an easy book to read, and it's not an easy movie to watch either. It's truly a violent satire about the romanticizing of sex and violence. For those of you who haven't seen the movie, it's set in England in this alternate future. The main character is named Alex, and he wanders around the streets with what he called his gang of droogs, and they spend their time hunting the streets looking for violence and the old in-out, in-out, and red-red vino. It's a story that's meant to disgust and shock, but it's a story that absolutely fascinated George Walt. There's a scene where the gang breaks into a house and ties up the husband and rapes his wife in front of him. And this scene was the type that was inspiration to George Walt. In fact, the idea of ganging up on a girl and raping her became a pervasive fantasy that loomed in the forefront of George's thoughts. While Lucas was in California, George didn't hang up his rape fantasies. They continued on without Lucas. He tried to hang out with other friends and guys from work, and all of them would eventually become really uncomfortable with George's so-called joking around. They would go to bars and clubs, and George would comment about how rapeable a woman who was who walked by. 
He would turn to his friend and ask them if they wanted to join him in taking a woman down and raping her. They would obviously say no, and George would play it off by joking about the look on their face, and that of course he wasn't ever going to do it. He was just trying to get a rise out of them. At one point, Walt took a friend up a gravel road to a spot where couples would park and make out. He even went to the point of stopping the car, and he got a couple of rocks off the side of the road and put them into the trunk, which he told his friend that they were going to use to beat a couple over their heads. They would kill the dude, or they would make him sit there and watch while they raped the woman, and then maybe they'd kill both of them and toss them over the cliffside. After driving a bit of the waist towards the spot, with the friend becoming increasingly frantic about what was going on, the friend told George that he didn't want to continue on, and George would again play it off like it was a joke, that he was just trying to press his friend into some kind of reaction. Somehow during all of this, Walt did manage to hold down a number of relationships with women. So all of these women had to endure George and his obsession with his appearance, and his obsession with porn, and the periodic appearance of Lucas Salmond, a sex-crazed Bible-thumper turned George Walt understudy. Walt ended up dating a woman named Bonnie, who oddly enough was also very into porn and kinky sex, but she soon became pregnant, and the two of them arranged to be married. Her pregnancy seemed to push George Walt even further into fantasies about rape, and by 1997, the two were married, and Lucas Salmon had written off California and moved in with them. Bonnie already had a three-year-old son, and Lucas moved into a futon in the little boy's bedroom. And I can't help but feel like this is the point where he became further infantilized and made him more desperate to prove himself to George. So the pair became increasingly engrossed in their now shared fantasy of raping a woman. They cruised the streets at night eyeing women as old as 60 years old and young girls as young as 10. One little girl they found walking alone and they actually tried to coax her into the car but she ran away. On multiple occasions they tried to act out the plan of actually abducting a woman. One night they sat outside of a local club and as women would exit the club they would follow the women out to their cars but they always had to stop because a man would walk out of the club as they got close to the woman. Other times, they would sit in their car and judge women who walked by, trying to decide on the right one. They called this the game, and it was only amping up. The pair got jobs at Lucas's dad's business, a place called Motorcycle Accessories Warehouse. They were rarely ever apart now. And because Lucas was the son of the owner of this place, the pair got away with quite a bit. They made sexually suggestive remarks towards co-workers and did as they pleased around the office. Lucas even had a chance to lose his virginity when a middle-aged, heavy-set married woman expressed an interest in having an affair with him. She even started wearing more provocative clothing to the office just for him. When her friends and co-workers asked her what the hell she was doing, she said that she thought it was fun and that she was looking to step out on her husband. And she liked how Lucas touched her under desks. With this debacle going on in one room, George Walt was turning heads in another. 
He was a decent seller of parts when he wanted to be, but when he wasn't doing that, he was doing his cartoon acts, or he was spacing out, or he was hitting on women. George Walt also made a show of humiliating Lucas at work with comments about his virginity or his lack of skills with women. Sometimes co-workers would catch George and Lucas just staring across the room into each other's eyes as if in a trance. And some of them began to suspect that they were in a relationship with each other. Around this time, Lucas wrote a letter to a friend in California bragging about his sexual conquests with bitches and telling his friend that he had a new motto, which was find them, fuck them, and forget them. Things in the home where pregnant Bonnie, George, Lucas, and Bonnie's three-year-old son were living were even weirder than before somehow. Lucas would be weirdly immature, and he would get into fights with the three-year-old. At one point, he even bit the child's hand when he got into an argument. This is a adult man getting into an argument with a three-year-old child and biting him over it. George and Lucas would come home to eat, then they would go immediately out to a local bar called the Corner Pocket to play pool, and then they would drive in the streets looking for a target. One night, Bonnie thought that she was going into premature labor, and she called the bar and had George return home. When he got home, he was pissed that she ruined their night, and he was even more pissed when he found out that it was a false alarm. One of their favorite hunting grounds was Garden of the Gods. For my non-Colorado listeners, this is a park near Colorado Springs adjacent to the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, and it has a number of standalone rock formations throughout the park that kind of look statuesque. It's one of the more popular and beautiful parks in Colorado to visit, which makes it setting for every everything that was happening here and their hunting grounds of this place even more disturbing. In the afternoon of April 29th, 1997, you might remember that date from earlier, the pair were slowly making their way around the winding road of Garden of the Gods when they came upon a female jogger running along the path that went alongside the road. In this moment, they decided that it was their time to act. They revved the gas of the car and they struck this jogger from behind, pushing her forward onto the ground. Her sunglasses flew off. Her name was Amber Gonzalez, and she was 18 years old. She got up and asked them what the hell they were doing. They said that they were really sorry, and they tried to offer her a ride to the hospital, which she declined. Trying to offer her a ride to the hospital or somewhere was their tactic to get her into the car and take her somewhere and rape her. So she asked for them to help her find her sunglasses and also told them that her father was the park ranger. They sort of pretended to bump around and look for the glasses and then they got back into their car and left. As they were leaving, George chastised Lucas for freezing up and not attacking her and Lucas showed off the sunglasses that he had nicked off the ground. And from here, you can't really make this stuff up. The pair returned to the apartment for a nice game of Monopoly with Bonnie and a friend of hers. So one minute they're knocking over women in the street that they want to rape and drag into their car, and their next they're heading home for a nice game of Monopoly. But you know, there was a woman other than Bonnie in the room, so of course George and Lucas were internally losing it. 
She ended up getting weird vibes and she decided to leave, but not after George propositioned her to sleep with Lucas. She declined and she left. And as she stood outside saying goodbye to Bonnie, she watched the two as they argued back and forth and stared at her. She heard George Lucas, uh, George Lucas, George accuse Lucas of being, and I quote here, a faggot. So now the two are all riled up by the prospect of playing a game of Monopoly with a woman who didn't immediately want to drop to her knees and suck Lucas Salmon off. So they made their way to a nightclub. Here they tried again to sneak up behind women, but always stopped when men walked out of the club. Frustrated with their failures, they left and they started to drive elsewhere. On their way down the road, they pulled up next to a woman in a small red car in the right lane. Through the window, they could see that she was a woman and that she was blonde, and they decided to follow her to wherever she was going. She pulled into the apartment complex and got out of her car. She was wearing shorts, black sandals, and a gray sweatshirt, and they decided to get out of their car and walk up behind her pretending that they lived there and that they were trying to go in as well. So as this girl tried to open the security door, they came up from behind and grabbed her. And George wrapped his hand around her waist and one around her neck. And Lucas grabbed her legs. And she screamed bloody murder and thrashed about. Jacine wasn't going to go down without a fight. So the two jammed her into the car and drove off. There were around a half dozen people who witnessed this. Police were contacted immediately. And around 11 p.m. on April 27th, they arrived in the apartment parking lot. A group of Mormon missionaries had run out, and one of them watched as George Wolt pummeled something laying in the back seat with punches. Just before, he looked up and smiled at them. A woman in the group wrote down a description of the car and the license plate number. Another woman screamed out of the window for them to leave the girl alone before calling the cops. Other people either saw or heard all of this happening as well. The cop that had arrived on the scene found a pair of black sandals on the sidewalk as if someone had just stepped out of them and left them there. He also found a black wallet containing an ID for Jacine and around $157. It was obvious that the perpetrators weren't after the money. Police quickly located a phone number for an address on the license of Jacine, and they were told by Jacine's roommates that she was going to visit her boyfriend in that apartment complex. They also got the number of her stepdad and mom, and of her boyfriend. That night, Bob and Peggy received the call that Jacine had been abducted and dragged into a car, and for the rest of the night, they hovered by the phone, awaiting more information. Police quickly ran this license plate number that was written down and they drove immediately to the address on file, which incidentally was updated and was the home where Bonnie, George, and Lucas lived in Colorado Springs. They zeroed in on the house and finding the car in the driveway surrounded the house. An officer banged on the door and could see shadows moving inside and demand that they open the door. Another officer broke a back bathroom window to scare them to act. George yelled, hey, and opened the door for them. So there stood George Waltz and Lucas Salmon and a pregnant Bonnie Walt. George was wearing a clean white polo. He told police that he wasn't armed, and they had him empty his pockets, 
and he placed a small pair of nail clippers onto the table. They immediately separated everyone in the home, and it was Lucas who cracked immediately. So, with a tone like he was explaining that he blew a stop sign, Lucas told the officers that he had stabbed a woman, and that they didn't even know her name. Police officers searched the car that was in the driveway, and they found a bloody steak knife and a gray sweatshirt with blood on it in the trunk. They asked Lucas where Jacine was, and he told them that they left her beneath a white van in the parking lot of an elementary school. For a brief moment, police had this idea in their heads that maybe Jacine was still alive. And at this point, they're racing to get this location. And so they shoved Lucas into the car and they made him drive them or show them the way to this site where her body was. And as they came into the parking lot, the cop had his searchlight on. And with the searchlight, he could just make out the figure of a nude body underneath a van. And in this moment in the rearview mirror, he watched Lucas turn and look at the body with this slight smile on his face. He left Lucas in the car and went to take Jacine's pulse, but she was cold and she was gone. Paramedics arrived and confirmed that she was dead. Not long after, detectives called Peggy and Bob back, and they told them that Jacine was dead. Peggy screamed, they killed her. And the last thing Bob said on the phone that morning was to ask a detective if she suffered. And the detectives told him, yes, she suffered. Investigators immediately roped off the area where Jacine's body was. And the school was going to be opening up the next day and having kids and people come. And they basically quarantined off an entire area so that people who were pulling up to drop off kids and kids would not be seeing any of this going on. Um, They even brought in a crane to remove the van from on top of her without disturbing any of the evidence by rolling over it. By all accounts, this looked like this sort of open and shut case. They had their guys, they had witnesses, the two men confessed, but detectives wanted to play every card right and they wanted to collect as much evidence as possible because as anyone who's into true crime knows, anything is possible in that courtroom. Lucas and George were separated back at the police station and they provided written statements and began to give their accounts of what happened that night. And guys, be prepared. This gets rough. After shoving Jacene into the car, George remained on top of her and repeatedly punched her in the face as witnessed by someone in the parking lot of the apartment complex who said a man in the back seat looked up and smiled at them. They drove out of the parking lot and around in some residential streets before pulling into the empty parking lot of the elementary school. Jacine was crying in the back seat and she was lying on top of Lucas Salmon's Bible that he always kept in the car. Both Lucas and George then described discussing who would, in their words, have sex with her first, as if this was something consensual. Lucas told George to go first. Maybe he wanted to watch. Maybe he didn't know what to do. And Jacine begged them at this time for them to not hurt her. And she complied with them. And maybe she thought she could get some favors by complying. 
to what they said, and maybe she thought that they would just let her go after raping her. But she removed her own pants. George needed assistance, and he made Jacine manually get him off until um, he could have sex with her, as he called it. And after five minutes, George was done, and it was now Lucas's turn. And Jacine was now on the floor of the back seat of the car, um, bent down on her knees. Lucas also needed assistance and made Jacine provide it, and then he raped her as well. After they were done, they made Jacine crawl backwards out of the car, and she was now nude, and she decided to leave behind a garnet tennis bracelet and ring in the back seat floorboard. They made her get face down on the pavement. And so as she lay there on the pavement, George and Lucas debated what to do with her and what the next step was going to be in their game. Oddly enough, some of the time they spoke high school German to each other since they both had taken German classes. This was just something that they indicated to police separately later on. After about 20 minutes of debating, they decided that she had to die. George went to the glove box of the car and retrieved a steak knife that he had stashed in there for just this kind of special occasion. They decided to try slitting her throat first. Salmon tried first, and they wrapped her shirt around her head and lifted her up. Lucas then told George to pull her head back and cover her mouth. Then Lucas, using the steak knife, cut a six to seven inch gash into her throat, but it didn't bleed much. The pair then switched places, and George made an attempt at slitting her throat as well. They said that she made no scream, just a muffled moaning sound through the shirt around her face. And then they realized that killing her wasn't going to be as easy as the movies made it out to be. They decided next that they should stab her in the chest. So they decided to stab her in the heart and debated whether or not there was a bone there that was going to be in the way. And they decided they need to stab hard enough to get through this bone. Salmon went first, and they laid her down on the ground and knelt at her side, and he brought the knife up above his head and stabbed her right in the chest with it. She left out this muffled scream through the shirt. The pair then switched places again, and George did the same. Then Salmon took his place again and made two stabs into her chest, on the second stab, Jacine brought her hand to where the wound was and screamed. Later on in the autopsy, it would be evident that Lucas stabbed through her hand. Jacine was still alive, though. She moaned and moved her hands around, trying to defend herself. Then Wolt tried again and hit bone, bending the blade. Lucas took the blade and attempted to straighten it by stepping on it before handing it back to George, and they could still hear Jacine breathing. It was now gurgled as if blood was filling her throat. The pair stopped again to discuss what to do next as Jacine suffered on the ground. They decided to try to suffocate her now, so they took her shirt and started stuffing it into her mouth, but she was flailing with her arms and continuing to resist. Lucas told George to step on her hand, but that wasn't working, so George took the steak knife and attempted to slash her right wrist with it. The first cut was kind of superficial, but the second cut was very deep and it nearly severed her hand off. They said at this point she let out just a small whine. 
They tried again to suffocate her, but it wasn't working. She was now rolling around and moaning, and they told her to put her arms onto her stomach, which even at this late stage, she complied with. And Walt put his foot down onto her chest to force the air out while Salmon tried to suffocate her. An hour since the whole ordeal began, Jacine mercifully finally was dead. Her death was needlessly painful and drawn out because Lucas and George had no idea what they were doing. In addition, they used a serrated steak knife. The pair then decided that they needed to cover up the evidence of their semen and they collected some mud and they shoved it up her vagina. They then rolled her body under a van. They got into the car and George said to Salmon, bet you're dying for a cigarette now, to which Salmon replied, at least I'm not a virgin anymore. And then, get this, they high-fived each other. After this, they drove around and they had a long discussion about life and death and hell. They both ended up deciding, probably rightly, that they were going to hell for this and they discussed the possibility of being apprehended. For the most part, their confessions were almost identical. The only difference was that each of them tried to put a little bit more of the blame and decision-making on the other person. Investigators were stunned, not only by the story, but by how much effort that they put into being equally culpable, including switching off turns, stabbing, and cutting her, literally just handing the knife back and forth to switch terms, to switch their turns and for each of them to have a stab. The detectives asked them both to indicate on a drawing of a body where the wounds on Jacine were, and Lucas Salmon actually did the marks with two different colored pens, one for him and one for George. And he indicated the wounds that he made and the wounds that George made. And all of these wounds matched up perfectly for what was actually on Jacine's body. They looked up prior records and they found out that George Walt had been evicted and that he had some prior crimes of writing bad checks. They both had traffic tickets. Lucas Salmon's record was otherwise clean. The rock throwing incident had been expunged from both of their records after they did probation and volunteer work. The autopsy verified pretty much everything that the pair had said in their statements. Her right wrist was slashed so deep that her hand was nearly amputated. Her face and body were covered in bruises and contusions. Her neck was slashed, but the coroner ended up noting that no major artery had been severed here because when you tilt the head back, the carotid artery and the jugular vein actually move further deeper into the neck. And he noted that the slashes on her um, neck were not close enough to get to these uh, veins or arteries. Um, he noted that the stab wounds on her chest, one of which hit a rib. And he determined that her cause of death was internal bleeding from two stab wounds that struck her heart. During all of the suffocating, she was slowly dying from bleeding out on the inside. Despite her vagina being packed with mud, the coroner still managed to find traces of semen for analysis. News of the crime took off in Colorado Springs, but it was also largely drowned out by the ever-present coverage of the ongoing JonBenet Ramsey case from the previous Christmas. Lucas Salmon immediately declared that he didn't want lawyers and that he would plead guilty and take whatever punishment came to him. 
George Wolt was a little bit more reserved and he let things play out. In the meantime, Jacine's parents now had to handle their new life as childless parents of a murder victim. Media vans lined their street and hammered on their door on a daily basis. Over 1,000 people showed up for the memorial service for Jacine. She was cremated and her parents had not seen her body beforehand, wanting to remember her how she was when she was alive. People came out from all corners of Jacine's life to discuss what an important person she was, that she was a friend when they had no one else, that she was the glue that held together their sports team, and that she was like a team captain in all of her endeavors. And just like today, the media went back and forth about every aspect of her case that played out. It was still early for online forums to be popular, so most of it played out in local newspapers. People blamed those in the apartment complex for not doing more. They asked how a person could scream off of a balcony but not somehow save Jacine. People blamed the parents of the perpetrators. Why had they raised such psychopaths? They blamed school officials and police officers and anyone else. They blamed toxic masculinity and sexism. They blamed Bonnie Wolt, George's wife, for not knowing more or doing more. And she wasn't really doing herself any favors at this time either. Oddly enough, she seemed like a really decent match for George. She was also obsessed with porn and kinky sex, and she was more upset that George didn't want her to roleplay in rape scenes, that he went out and found somebody else. She told friends that she wondered why Jacene was raped and not her. She wondered if Jacene was prettier than her. She was evicted from her apartment because she was living in a government help apartment and the state claimed that there was criminal activity in the apartment and used that to revoke her assistance. And yeah, she's crazy and she said some pretty tasteless stuff, but I don't see how she played a role in this or why they decided to remove her benefits, especially with the three-year-old son and another one on the way. But anyway, the trials would end up being a bit of a debacle. I'm not going to weigh you all down with the details, but I will say that George and Lucas were tried separately. The defense lawyers were a who's who grab bag of the absolute most shameless bottom feeder public defenders that they could drudge up. Uh, Lucas Salmon was to be tried first and his trial was needlessly drawn out with motion after motion to stall it. Every time they got into the courtroom for a hearing, His public defender, Terry Brake, would say that she needed more time to prepare. In Colorado, there were not, and I'm fairly sure are still not, limitations on what a public defender could spend. So with this running around through the courts, Jacine's friends and family had a hard time trying to put this all behind them. The University of Colorado announced that they would award Jacine her degree posthumously, and Peggy and Bob went to the graduation day. Peggy stood there with the rest of the students, watching them wave at their parents and friends before they walked to receive their diplomas. Bob sat alone in the stands, where Peggy should have been with him, watching Jacine walk. Then they announced Jacine Galinsky, and there was a loud applause and a standing ovation as Peggy, with tears streaming down her cheeks at the sound of her daughter's name, received the diploma for her amidst applause. Many people in the crowd were also crying. 
Then, just like that, she walked off the stage, and that chapter of her daughter's life was over. Her life was over, and Peggy and Bob felt that their lives were over, too. In January of 1999, the first trial for Lucas Salmon finally started to get underway. Both defense teams developed a really similar blend of strategies here. They both tried for insanity pleas, and they both tried to confound the case with endless motions and appeals and paperwork. They put forth motions, including ones wanting to ban photos of Jacine, both alive and dead, and ban footage of her autopsy and her body condition, such as, you know, during the autopsy, they'll do a scanning footage of the, ser- of the body down it, and they wanted that banned. And those things are typically shown in a murder case. They wanted to ban photos of the crime scene, claiming that they were too gruesome to see. One lawyer for Lucas Salmon even called Peggy, Jacine's mother, to ask her to drop the pursuit of the death penalty, which Peggy declined. On trial day in February of 1999, they read from Lucas Salmon's statement to the police the night that they murdered Jacine. It says here, and I quote, The roots of this incident date back to approximately one month ago. My friend George Walt and I viewed a film called A Clockwork Orange. The film depicted graphic scenes of violence, betrayal, and rape. It was then that we first became interested in the act of sexual assault. We had only joked about it at first, but as time went by, we both agreed that it was something that we would like to do. Various psychiatrists were called in to evaluate Lucas Salmon, and every psychiatrist billed the state heftily. One taking home $70,000 for testimony about the mental state of Lucas Salmon. All had some variation of the following. That Lucas Salmon was defenseless against the manipulations of George Walt. That unlike George Walt, Lucas Salmon had not pre-planned this murder. That Lucas Salmon was a lost and mentally disturbed man who was helpless to psychological manipulation. One of his attorneys said that this is a case about darkness, a case about loneliness. It's about a young man so lost that no one knew he was missing. One psychiatrist claimed that Lucas imagined that he was actually on a date with Jacine and that he thought the sex was consensual. They also claimed he suffered from dependent personality disorder, that he was an easy pawn for the manipulative George Walt. Psychiatrists tried to paint a picture that Salmon was incapable of making his own decisions at the time of the murder. Jacine's mom had to cut open the evidence bag of her daughter's belongings, unopened since the night that she was killed, and identify the red garnet tennis bracelet that she gave her daughter as a gift for Christmas, as well as the ring, right there on the witness stand. A detective took took the stand to testify to whether or not he felt the pair intended to torture Jacine, and he actually said no. They were just so inept at killing her that her death was drawn out longer than they had planned. After all of the psychiatric testimony and random motions, the jury finally deliberated, and they didn't take long. Lucas Salmon was found guilty on all counts. At the sentencing, the same psychiatric tactics were employed in an attempt to absolve Lucas Salmon of some of the blame and spare him the death penalty. 
And to that point, it seemed to have worked. He received life in prison without the possibility of parole. And this decision was passed down by a panel of judges with only one dissenting from the death penalty and insisting on life in prison. Many of Jason's friends ran from the courtroom crying after this decision. Much of the town of Colorado Springs wasn't happy with this decision either. Salmon's case had cost more than $2.5 million, and it was the costliest of five death penalty cases argued in front of a panel of judges. Unsurprisingly, when it came time for George Woltz's trial, his lawyers tried the exact same tactics. They attempted to push blame for all of these crimes onto Lucas Salmon. They said that without Salmon's constant complaining about his own virginity, George would have never tried to help him solve his problem. They claimed it was Salmon who had the sexual fantasies and that Walt just gave into him. They also went as far as to claim that George's behavior was due to a tiny and not uncommon calcium deposit in his brain and that this combined with the pressure to get Lucas Salmon laid forced him to carry out this unspeakable act. One psychiatrist argued something that made people in the courtroom gasp. She argued if that previous thing didn't already. She argued that George Wolt committed this rape and murder in a dissociative state, that he was mentally out of his own body, and she stated that George Wolt felt like he was the one being raped, and that Jacene was removing his clothes. So according to psychiatrists, this couple of trials, we have one guy who thought he was on a date, and another dude who thought he was being raped, all as they raped Jacene in the backseat of their car before slowly killing her. The jury found George Wolt also guilty on all counts. This time, George Wolt was sentenced to death, again by a panel of judges. After these two trials, they also held a trial for Amber Gonzalez, who at 18 years old was hit by Lucas and George Walt while she ran in Garden of the Gods. She testified that she had no idea how close she was to having Jacene's fate. Lucas and George did what they pleased. They were Alex and a droog who followed Alex from Clockwork Orange. It's a pity that the two weren't smarter and they hadn't realized that movie wasn't about the pleasure of violence, but about the folly of romanticizing it. To quote Anthony Burgess in A Clockwork Orange, in a quote that Steve Jackson also found appropriate for the beginning of his book, If one can only perform good or only perform evil, then he is a clockwork orange, meaning that he has the appearance of an organism lovely with color and juice but it is in fact only a clockwork toy to be wound up by God or the devil. The 90s were really rough for crime in Colorado. The Chuck E. Cheese shooting in 1993, the murder of JonBenet Ramsey, the murder of Jacine Galinsky, and the William Neal, a.k.a. Wild Bill Cody case, who I do have an episode about earlier on, who was luring women from the bar into a torture chamber in the home of a woman that he murdered. And in 1999, there was the shooting at Columbine. Everybody was really on edge. There was a general sense of outrage over the trials for Lucas Salmon and George Walt. For all the psychiatric twists and turns, the motions filed, the witness statements from anyone and everyone who ever came across them, Jacene's parents still had 
absolutely no idea why Lucas and George did this. In 2003, George Woltz's sentence was changed from death to life in prison without parole after the Supreme Court ruled that juries, not a panel of judges, were to determine a sentence in a death penalty case. The two still sit in prison to this day. And here's the other thing. Lucas Salmon went to jail still a virgin because he never actually had sex with anybody. Maybe his bunkmates have finally fixed that problem for him. And that's all for today, you guys. I'm going to have some pictures associated with this case up on my Instagram at Colored Red Podcast as usual. Um, please check that out. Also, check out my Patreon page. It's colored. It's uh, patreon.com slash coloredredpodcast. If you donate just $1 per month, you'll receive a sticker from me and a handmade card. And if you don't want to do something that you have to pay money for, just going on to wherever you listen to this podcast and giving me a rating and a review will help me out quite a lot. And you guys, send me stories, send me comments about this case, send me your thoughts. If you knew somebody involved, if you knew somebody involved in any of my cases and you just want to talk about it, send that to me at um, coloredredpodcast at gmail.com. And I read all those and I'll take them to heart. I also sort of want written out stories about creepy things you've come across. Maybe you've got a crime that you almost became involved in. Maybe you narrowly escaped being involved in a crime or being the victim. Maybe you knew somebody who committed one. I don't know. Just send them to me. Send your stories to me. Send a typed out story. And I am going to start a segment, if I get any stories, where I read them at the end of the show. So please send those to me, and I'll start reading those for you guys, and we'll have a good time. So until next time, everybody, thanks. Thanks.